0: Hello to all my lovely listeners. So welcome back to another episode. Now, having really enjoyed speaking with inspirational women in the wine industry over the month of March, I felt I wasn't quite ready (laughs) to throw in the baton feminine. And really, I wanted to dedicate the majority of this episode to a lady who had no business skills, who, against all odds, ended up being named La Grande Dame of Champagne, And it is fair to say she brought us about a champagne lifestyle whilst creating a champagne empire. I am, of course, talking about the lady behind the famous orange-yellow labelled champagne named Verve Clicquot. So I'm going to start with the journey and story behind this label. I was going to talk about some other inspirational women, however whilst recording this I felt that Madame Clicquot deserved her own episode so then I shall glide across to the actual Champagne region where I'm going to break down the five sub-regions and talk about the Grand Crus and where they are. So I'm sure along your wine journey, many of you have had at least a bottle or two of Verve Clicquot at some point. Now, the name Verve Clicquot translates to Widow clico, And I suppose that's where the story starts for Madame Barb Nicole Ponsardine Clicquot. So I need to take you back to the year 1805. So just imagine with me, this is a time where women were not entitled to their own bank accounts, God forbid, choose where to even spend their pennies. Women of status, like, they didn't work. They were raised to be good mothers and caretakers of the home. In fact, a woman was considered a minor under the protection of her father until she was married. And, well, I was going to say, fun fact, not fun fact an educated girl was often seen as sexually unattractive making it harder for her to marry so these are the times we're talking about so during these very prohibitive and confining times at the age of 27 her husband passes away and leaves her alone with a six-year-old child and what was at the time a failing wine brokerage business. Now, her father-in-law, he set about to sell this business as actually from both sides of the family, the textile industry was actually where all their money came from. However, Madame Clicot, she had other ideas, bringing a rather intriguing proposition to his desk. So she asks for more investment from him with the understanding that if it all goes wrong, she will lose her entire inheritance. So Felipe, her father-in-law, quite clearly understood that actually his daughter-in-law was astute and he invests in her, but insists that she does an apprenticeship under the highly thought-about winemaker Alexandre Fourneau. Now, during her four-year apprenticeship, she was unable to turn a profit due to being actually in the midst of a revolution. This was the Napoleon Wars at this time. However, the wars were ending, and so having not actually lost any money, didn't make any, but didn't lose any, she convinced Felipe for a little more money. At this point, it was also worth pointing out that champagne was actually better known for its still wines than of its sparklings back then. So... She knew that Russia was a perfect market for the champagne that she'd been making. So the style of the time was super sweet. So we are talking nearly 300 grams per liter of residual sugar, which is insanely sweet for a champagne. The highest sweetness level now is dou, which is from 50 grams per liter of residual sugar. And then, of course, Upwards. Now, she knew that if she got into Russia first, she could create great success. But at this point, there were still naval blockades everywhere. So what she did, she smuggles her wines as far as Amsterdam, as she knew from there, it would be a much quicker route to Russia. It sat there waiting so that at the moment when the blockades were lifted, her wines were able to leave immediately. And of course, they arrived in Russia literally weeks before everyone else's. And so... Shortly after, Tsar Alexander I announces to the world that this is the only kind of champagne he will drink. And of course, everybody wants to drink what the kings and queens are drinking. So this then became the legendary 1811 vintage. So then this leads her to becoming so popular, she is actually not able to keep up with demand. So at this point in time, typical champagne winemaking is really wasteful and very time-consuming. So this is due to having to extract the dead yeast from the bottom of the bottle. So to understand why it's there, alcoholic fermentation is the biological process in which yeast converts sugar into alcohol. You know, and a byproduct of that is carbon dioxide, which is where your bubbles come from in traditional method sparkling wines. As During this process, the bottle is sealed, meaning the CO2 can't escape. Now, once all of the sugar has been converted, the yeast dies and it's going to fall to the bottom of the bottle. So to extract this yeast or lees, as it's often called, what they would do is they would just move the wine from one bottle to another. Not only would they lose A lot of that juice, but they'd also be affecting the bubbles by agitating them, so this can affect the quality, and, of course, it took ages to do. So, introducing rumage, known in English as riddling. This is where you slowly, over time, you move the yeast from the bottom of the bottle to the bottleneck, known as surpoint, by slowly rotating the bottle and turning it upside down, letting gravity do its job. So this can be done with the assistance of a poupitre. This is a riddling rack. So that's basically if you can imagine a wooden frame in the shape of an A. This holds the bottles as you twist and turn them into position. So you can gently move the lees down to the neck. Then when you're ready, you can pop open the top and the sediment will come out as the carbon dioxide below it effectively will help push it out. Nowadays, we will freeze the neck of that bottle so that when the bottle is open, the sediment will fly out as one plug and the process is super clean. So that is what we call disgorgement. Now back in the early 1800s, this process at the time was a brand new invention and something that took other champagne houses decades to find out about. If you do go to Champagne today, the majority of houses will automate this process. So they will use a machine called a gyro palette. And this machine can hold 500 bottles at a time and it can do the whole process in one week. Whereas to compare, if you do it manually, it's going to take between four to six weeks and a good remue, this is the French name for bottle turner, can turn up to 40,000 bottles in a day, which is beyond impressive now the fact that she was able to make so many more bottles by using this method and the quality was even better. It meant that she was able to set her sights on exporting all over the world. And then by doing so, she in fact made the product more accessible, meaning it wasn't just a product for the upper class. So for that reason, Barb Nicole, we salute you on this one, bringing it down to our levels. Um, it is fair to say that Madame Clicco was one of the world's first international businesswomen, let alone first in the wine industry. And for this, personally, she's forever. Going to be my wine hero motivation and inspiration. So, time for me to toast Madame Clicquot by opening up a bottle of Veuve Clicquot Brut Rose Non-Vintage Champagne. Now, whilst Pink Fizz is now found in every supermarket shelf and all discerning wine lists, this style was not the norm in the early 1800s. Now, documents have recently surfaced to show that it's actually the Champagne House Rue who were producing an eye de Padre, which means eye of the partridge, referring to the pale copper colour of a recently shot. Partridge's eye. Now they made this rosé in 1764 and it's believed to be a rosé made with skin contact. So that would be where you let the Pinot Noir or the Pinot Meunier, or both, which are black skin grapes, have time to macerate and so they're going to extract some colour from the skins. However, it was Madame Clicquot herself who indeed invented the process of blending red grapes with white for the first time. So not only did she create the riddling process but in 1818 she mastered this art of blended rosé which is generally now the favoured way to make modern day champagne rosé. Now champagne in general is all about the art of blending so this specific Champagne Rosé, is made with about 50%, it changes obviously year on year, 50% Pinot Noir with about 30% Chardonnay and then 20% of Pinot Meunier. Now these three are the main grape varieties that are used in pretty much most champagnes. However, this of course is an educational podcast and so where would I be just chatting away, giving you stories without telling you there are actually seven permitted varieties allowed in Champagne. So the other four, which account for about 0.3% of the plantings, hence why you don't tend to hear about them, are Pinot Gris, Pinot Blanc, Petit Meslier and Arbane. Now Pinot Blanc and Pinot Gris are both mutations of Pinot Noir, Pinot Blanc specifically actually gets confused often with Chardonnay in terms of its berry size and its leaves and does have beautiful acidity. Pinot Gris is much more aromatic and can give you lots of fruitiness. Petit Meslier is all about acidity and Albain can be a little bit herbaceous. Right, so going back to the blend. Obviously, you know the three main varieties and the percentage they use. That is also very similar with the Brut Yellow Labels traditional blend as well they take all this from around 50 to 60 different crews within champagne and they will add anything between 30 to 45 percent of reserve wine so what that means is that up to around 70 percent is going to be from the specific vintage and the rest are back vintages now these back vintages are great for consistency and for quality firstly they're going to add more richness as they're older roundness to the wine but also no matter what the vintage is like whether it was a poorer vintage whether it was a great vintage they will make sure that the consistency is there so year on year out the wine tastes the same because when you have your non-vintage each champagne house will have their specific style and it needs to be the same year on year out And then to finish off, it's blending time with taking some red still wine and adding it into the final product. And with this rosé, it's 12% red wine. So I'm expecting something that's going to be pretty red fruit dominant. So let's see. Whoop, there we go. So it's a really rich, intense nose, very fruity. I get lots of like watermelon and fruit salad, but with this really nice strawberry shortbread biscuit note, and actually there's this freshness of kind of a, a herby, uncooked sourdough. All of that on the nose. Mm. Mm. The palate is really fruity. Loads of red berries and quite tart cherries it's a nice dry style but without being bone dry or too sharp it's it's got a creaminess it's actually quite rounded it's got this kind of nice tongue coating going on now I really like the crunchiness of the red fruits it's got good acidity um, but obviously it's rounded so it doesn't feel like it has sharp edges Um, fine bubbles but actually very easy drinking this is in general just a really fruity and soft example of a non-vintage rose champagne. So if you like the sound of this rose, the joys of this being a grand mark means that you can find it in most supermarkets and it's gonna be around 49 pounds. However, be clever and wait for the supermarkets to have one of their deals on. So buy six and get 25% off. And if you are listening upon release, I know that Tesco's is doing that exact deal until the 18th of April. And Waitrose is doing 25% off on this specific wine until the 19th of April. And now if you're getting this rose or other sparkling roses, I love it with a little bit of spice. Now, think samosas or corn frittatas, or that rose champagne is super versatile with its really high acidity. It's able to cut through anything fatty. And then those crunchy berries or strawberry notes, they give the fruitiness that goes with bolder flavors and can handle mushrooms rather well and all those other earthier tones on your plate. Now other great pairings would be smoked salmon or a tuna tartare and if you get a champagne that's richer you can start thinking of meats such as roast duck. Now going back to the lady of the hour Madame Clicquot also went on to inspire other women so towards the end of her own tale it was louise pomery who followed in our footsteps recently widowed and determined to take over and grow her own family business so she went on to invent the brute style of champagne which we so regularly drink as standard so brute is from zero to 12 grams per liter of residual sugar and i've talked about sugar levels before in the past however i think it's always a good idea to have a little bit of a recap. So going from zero, if you see on the bottle labelled Brut Nature, or anything that says natural, it's going to be under three grams per litre of residual sugar. If it says extra brute, then it's zero to six grams. If it's brute, as we've just mentioned, up to 12 grams. Then if it says extra sec, or extra dry, this is 12 to 17 grams per liter. If it says dry or sec, it's 17 to 32 grams per liter. If it says demi sec, it's 32 to 50 grams per liter. And as we've just mentioned earlier on, du is all the sweetness from 50 plus grams per liter of residual sugar. Now, Madam Clicko has definitely gone down as a woman of wit, incredibly business-minded, but uncompromising in quality. When the juice wasn't good enough, she would actually turn down orders. In fact, the house's long-standing motto is only one quality – The finest. And if you yourself are now looking for some advice from Barb Nicole herself, a letter was found that was written to her grandchild. And in this letter, it said The world is in perpetual motion, and we must invent the things of tomorrow. One must go before others, be determined and exacting, and let your intelligence direct your life. Act with audacity. Now, if you want to go and visit this champagne house, you can find them in Reims. Now, it's spelt R-E-I-M-S, but you don't pronounce the M. And of course, seeing as this is an educational podcast, I figure, well, let's touch on the champagne region just quickly. So if you start in Paris and you go northeast about 90 miles, you are going to hit Champagne. Now, when you picture Champagne, you want to imagine lots of small hills and those beautifully chalky white soils. Now it's in the ground below surface where they age all their champagne for so many years and they call these crayers which translates to chalk pits. So these are basically excavated cellars some of which are complete labyrinths kilometers and kilometers long lined with aging bottles. Now there are five regions to know about and three of them are considered the most premium and are based around the two unofficial capitals of Champagne, Epenay and Raz. So let me try and paint a picture. First of all we have Raz, and about 18 miles south is Epenay. Now literally to the south of Raz, in this kind of u-shape curve you have the Montagne de Raz. and Actually, it has all three of the main grape varieties growing there, but the most known and considered most prestigious is Pinot Noir. Now, chalky soils are there, but you will find more limestone and clays towards the west, and it calls itself a mountain. But you remember I said, think of small hills. At the highest point, we're talking 283 meters above sea level. Now, when you get to Epinay, you will find the Champagne region is split by the River Marne. So, from Epinay and towards the west, wrapping around the river, you're going to find the Valley de la Marne. Here, you find there are more issues with frost, but the slopes tend to be south-facing, so there's a lot more sun. So, Pinot Monnier rains here it's a late budding grape variety and ripens early so it's perfect for this region and typically soil wise you get a whole mixture of clay sand and limestone now just south of Epinay is the cote de blanc and try to remember that with the word blanc white, chardonnay, chalky soils. So the most chalky soils you're going to find are in the Côte de Blanc. And these are on east, southeast facing slopes, and you get the brightest, most high acidity, vibrant styles of chardonnay. Now, these are the three major regions, and you're going to find all of the Grand Cru's in these three regions. Now, when we say Grand Cru, this basically translate to best growth. And then you have premier Cruise underneath this. So this all got set up going back to 1919. What was happening, a lot of the growers who were selling their grapes to the Grand marks were feeling like things weren't fair, and they wanted the prices to be fixed or to have a little bit more consistency. And so the Echelle de cru was set in place, this is like the ladder of crews where all the vineyards were assessed based on their climate, their location, their aspect of the sun their topography they were given points between 1 and 100, although to be honest no vineyards got less than 80 so how it works is if you are 90 to 99 points you are therefore a premier crew and if you are 100 points you are a grand crew now, there's a lot of arguments. Right now, this system for pricing is not used. The relationships are so much better between the growers and the champagne houses. And this was set in place in 1919. So, climate change has happened, different farming techniques, winemaking techniques. So, very often, someone saying they prefer a Grand Cru over a Premier Cru could well be more of a personal preference. However, It is still definitely a symbol of prestige, quality and definitely has historic value. Now, if you are interested in the Grand Cru's, there are 17 of them, and there are 44 Premier Cru's. Because 17 is a lower number than 44, I am going to list all 17 Grand Cru's with the best French accent I can muster. But don't forget, there's the transcript, so go to my show notes if you want to see all of these Grand Cru's written down. So there are 9 in the Montagne de Rez, there is posiou, celery, maïs champagne, vezenet, versy beaumont Seuvelle, then there's ombonnet, There's Bouzy. Now, at this point, we're really getting on the curb. All of these, I've started from the north going round and now south-facing slopes. So these two really are known for being the richest, most full-bodied Pinot Noirs of the lot. And in fact, if you're after a still red, that would be under the category Coteau Champenoise. That's what they call the still wines of Champagne. And you may well see them coming from these two regions. And then... Kind of on the southwestern part, so we've kind of gone all the way down and we're curving round on this one part of the hill, you have the last village of Levois now the next two grand crews you're going to find officially in the valley de la man however effectively they are an extension of this hill that has curved around on the montagne de res so first you have i which very much like Bouzy produces really full-bodied reds but is actually lower down in altitude making it even more powerful and then the second one slightly further to the east is tosuman then if we go to the Côte de Blanc, we have the six remaining Grand Cru. So starting in the north, going south, you have Chouy, then Cromant, which is known to be super chalky. Then you have Huare, followed by Avise, which has richer soil, some clay contents. So you find sometimes more powerful Chardonnays coming from there. Then you have Auger, followed by Le Menil sur so Auger, and both of these really do produce mineral wines with super high acidity. Now that's the Grand Cruz, but there are two other subregions that are further south from these three. You have the Cote de Cézanne, which is like an extension of the Cote de Blanc, and it starts it's in the south and it goes to the southwest. The Chardonnays there tend to have slightly less acid. There's less chalk in the soils, but the reputation is growing a lot for the champagnes coming out of this region now. Equally... If you go down south, but to the east, you have the orb region. So it's called the Côte de Bar. This is ironically 40 miles to Chablis and a hundred miles to Epinay. So it's much closer to Chablis than it is to the main regions of Champagne. Equally, the soils are actually very different. Instead of them being chalky, there's like a Kimmeridgian Marl, And down here, Pinot Noir is doing excellent things now if you want to dig deeper into champagne go back to episode 42 which is on grower champagne so we're comparing the growers to the grand marks understanding the back of the bottle so those initials what does that mean but get in touch with me if champagne is a region that you may want to geek out on my contact details are in the show notes and now to finish off I have a sweet quote from Coco Chanel, who was a French fashion designer and businesswoman, and also, of course, the founder of the Chanel brand. She is rather well known to have said, I only drink champagne on two occasions when I am in love and when I am not. Well, I think that shows her to be a very well informed woman. <laughs> right so that is it i hope you've enjoyed learning about the story of madame Clicquot, and perhaps it inspires you on your own venture or simply just helps you to enjoy a bottle of verve Clicquot next time you get your hands on one obviously if you can treat yourself to a grand Cru, why not see if you have a favorite village that does it for you thank you as always for listening. Make sure you are subscribed, like the podcast and give it a share across your social media platforms. Leave me a comment if your podcast app allows and next week... I am bringing you something very different. Do you think cider is wine? Well, I'm talking with Alistair Morrell, who after decades of experience working in all parts of the wine industry, has now set up the business Cider is Wine and is on a mission to get all of us wine drinkers to realise the quality and potential of cider made from 100% fruit juice. So tune in next week with an open mind and see if Alistair can convince you. Until then, cheers to you.